Hello and welcome to the Abbey Theatre Talk series. My name's Katrina McLaughlin and I'm the Artistic Director of the Abbey. I'm delighted to share this selection of post-show talks created around our production of Molière's Tartuffe in a new version by Frank McGuinness. As part of my role here at the Abbey, I have the pleasure of stepping in to direct some of the shows on our stages and Tartuffe is one of those productions. For me, this show was a real highlight because I got the opportunity to work with one of my literary heroes and fellow Donegal native Frank McGuinness. It's been a long time dream of mine to work with Frank and reading this incredible adaptation, which is so much fun, um, a lot of laughs. I wanted to direct it myself. It's something I knew was important to do and important for the Abbey to hear Frank's perspective on the world's most notorious hypocrite. Um, the show uh, had a very talented team around it, so it was a real privilege for me to work as part of that team. Although Tartuffe was first written in the 1600s and first performed back in 1664, it really struck me reading uh, Frank's adaptation how many of the themes are still relevant in 21st century Ireland. It's a dramatic comedy and at its core it's a play about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy as a tool for social advancement. It's really about power, the power of money, the power of sex, of patriarchal control. And it was really astonishing reading Frank's new version to see how many of these themes still feel so familiar and so present in Irish culture, even now in 2023. There's something about uh, Tartuffe that makes me think about how we all engage with social media. And in an age where content is king and fortunes can change really quickly with a wrong-footed tweet or an online video, I wanted to bring that into the production in some way, creating a production that examined the big questions we confront as a culture and, I suppose, the new underlying norms of our society. So I suppose in trying to have a conversation uh, with our audience and think about the themes that are reflected in this play, we could think of no better person than Katrina Crow. This is the second time we've invited her back to the Abbey uh, to explore the themes exposed in one of our productions. Katrina selected a number of panellists to join her on the stage and be part of the discussion on the topics of Tartuffe. The first talk uh, we chose covered Me Too, confronting patriarchy and sexual oppression. For this talk, Katrina was joined on stage by Irish Times writer and columnist Roisin Ingle and We Consent campaign project manager with Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Sarah Monaghan. They discussed the Waking the Feminist campaign and how we've done since the campaign was first launched back in 2015. For example, is there more to be done? The panel also explored whether toxic masculinity is a response to women's attempts to defeat sexual oppression. The second talk was around religious hypocrisy. This was a conversation explored by Katrina along with journalist and novelist Jean Kerrigan and journalist and writer Kaylin Hogan. Together they discuss 
the general theme of hypocrisy and if hypocrisy is part of the Irish system of a lesion of difficult things. I hope you enjoy listening to both these conversations. Not a bad house. You're all very welcome. Thank you for staying on after the play to listen to our um, post-show discussion. This is the second of two uh, episodes of Changing the Conversation that we're having here in the Abbey to respond to Molière's Tartuffe. This was an idea of Katrina McLaughlin's, the artistic director of the theatre here, who thought it would be interesting to draw some themes from the plays that are going on on the stage here, explore them in their context and expand them into current uh, relevance. So we had one two weeks ago uh, based on confronting patriarchy and sexual oppression, of which there's plenty in Tartuffe. Uh, that was on the 23rd of March. And tonight we're talking about hypocrisy. Is that a besetting Irish failing? Now, Molière's Tartuffe was first performed at the French court of Louis XIV, who you saw in all his glory arriving onto the stage tonight, in 1664, and almost immediately banned due to the opposition of the Archbishop of Paris, Paul Perifix, who sounds like a character from Asterix the Gaul. He'd fit in perfectly. He thought it's, it's revelation of a character outwardly pious, but inwardly avaricious, lecherous, and deceitful, might encourage audiences to emulate him, which seems rather stupid given that he comes to a terrible end. However, that was the Archbishop's opinion. Although the play was performed in private over the next five years, the play was not seen in public again until 1669, when it was a smash hit and has been ever since. Tartuffe is a wily operator who manages to convince Orgon, surely one of the most gullible and stupid characters in the history of drama, that he's a pious holy man who only cares for Orgon's spiritual well-being rather than his money, his wife and his daughter. Orgon swallows all this tripe to the point where he's about to lose everything when Elmire, the heroic and wonderful Elmire, steps in with a deceit of her own to demonstrate the false piety of Tartuffe. His downfall is satisfying to the audience and the Sun King himself makes a glorious and very fashionable appearance to seal the deal. But underneath all the fun and games lies a sombre truth that there are people who can manipulate others for their own material gain by spouting pious platitudes at odds with their actual beliefs. Religion can often be the vehicle for such characters. Witness the numerous evangelical Christians in the United States who have made fortunes out of their adoring flocks only to be discovered in affairs with women, not their wives. The main theme of Tartuffe, hypocrisy, don't do what I do, but what I say has been pilloried by many Irish writers from Sheridan to Boussico to Joyce to Tom Murphy to John B. Keane to Kate O'Brien and Anne Enright. Is hypocrisy part of the Irish system of elision of difficult things, the way there are things we tend not to talk about? For example, parents who proclaim themselves to be secular but still send their children to Catholic schools and couldn't be bothered setting up an educate-together school in their district, which is hard to do but does work. Are we still participating in mass hypocrisy about the same Catholic Church's treatment of women and children over many decades? And has our political system been imbued with different kinds of hypocrisy over the decades, ranging from Charles Hawhey's notorious failure to pay any tax at all in the 1960s, to the activities of the heavy gang in the police force in the 1970s, to Bertie O'Hearn's famous Anorak Bank in the 2000s? He was going around the city with a bank full of money in his anorak, if we are to believe the evidence that he gave to various tribunals. We have two splendid people here tonight to discuss these issues. Jean Kerrigan, uh, 
is an eminent Irish journalist who has been writing about current affairs here for over 40 years for Hot Press, McGill and the Sunday Tribune, and he's currently a columnist for the Sunday Independent, where his writings are essential reading every week. He has published eight books of non-fiction, from the brilliant Roundup The Usual Suspects in 1984 to The Scrap in 2015, and including a superb memoir, Another Country, published in 1998. He's also published an, accla an acclaimed also published four acclaimed books of crime fiction, from Little Criminals to The Rage. His familiarity with various kinds of Irish hypocrisy is profound and wide-ranging. Caelan Hogan is the author of Republic of Shame, How Ireland Punished Fallen Women and Their Children, a beautifully written and impeccably researched book on the mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries and industrial schools, which until relatively recently incarcerated people who transgressed or might transgress the values of a hugely hypocritical church and state. And Caelan is a well-known journalist who's written for uh, such organs as the New York Times and the Guardian, the Dublin Review and many others. So I'm gonna start with Jean who you are a connoisseur of Irish political hypocrisy, which is closely tied to religious hypocrisy. Since until about 30 years ago, we were all supposed to be very good Catholics in this country, uninterested in money and material things, but focused on our immortal souls. That was certainly not true of many of our political leaders or indeed other pillars of society like judges, doctors and business people. You have chosen two people that you'd like to talk to us about. Uh, in relation to that subject. Will you tell us about them? Yeah, um, I, was, I was trying to think of an area of Irish life that hasn't been explored so much in, in terms of hypocrisy. The church, I think, is, is getting a good doing over. And that is crime and who we put in jail and what we do with other people we don't want to put in jail. And there's two people I wrote about. One was a guy called Richard, who was a a businessman, uh, he had quite a number of bank accounts, and he borrowed, I think, 15,000 or 14,000 from allied Irish banks, and it went up and up in interest till it was 36,000, and he hadn't paid anything back. So they took him to court, in the course of which they found out that he already had another account in the bank under a different name, which the bank had facilitated with, knowing that, he, that it was a, a, a crooked account. So they couldn't continue the way they intended, They'd just taking him for everything he had, because as soon as he could understand, he'd explained about his different accounts. So they told him, we're dropping the case, and he said, no, I want my day in court. And they said, uh, well, tell you, we'll drop the, the 36,000 that you owe us. Forget about that. He said, no, I spent some money on lawyers and things like that. So they said they would pay all the legal costs, which I reckon was around 80,000 at that stage. He said, no. So they offered him 10,000. And he said, no. So they offered him 15,000. And he said, yes. So they paid 15,000 for him to shut up. They paid 80,000 for the lawyers, and they paid, they Discharged for, for, all didn't charge the 36,000. So it cost them over 130,000 to deal with this, simply to keep it from coming out. And the reason they did was that they had 87,000 of these, they were called non-resident accounts, and of the 87,000, 53,000 were bogus. 
they knew very well what they were doing. That involved around 600 million, which has been yeah. taken out of the tax net. And this is just one bank. The other banks we don't know about. Or we, we don't know as much about. So they, they basically paid to keep this quiet. And yet it was known to the revenue. It was known to the government. It was known to the guards. Everybody knew about it. So and a massive network of hypocrisy. If and it, it, I wrote about it in the, the Sunday Independent, so what had happened there was known. Nothing happened. No one went to jail. There was no court case about it. It's a matter that we do not choose to deal with certain people in that way. The second person I would talk about was a guy called Carl Crawley, who was... He was the eighth child of 12 children. The first one died. The father, his business collapsed, so he went to England. The mother was left to bring up 11 children on her own. Uh, Carl, as you would expect, had a lot of free time to himself. And uh, he eventually got into trouble. He, he stole stuff. He would go into Lenahan's in Capel Street and steal picnic knives. He, didn't go on picnics, he didn't care about it. He, he, he got napkin rings, which he, no, which he didn't, he, he didn't have any napkins. Yeah. But he, it was a, a thing you got into stealing and you went from stealing to a, a different kind of lifestyle and drugs. Mm -hmm. And he had, they beat him up and he went through a whole lot of trouble. He fought back and he tried to preserve some sense of self-esteem, some sense of independence. And one of the things he did was he began swallowing things. Mm -hmm. he, they put him in, in St. Patrick's Institution, then they put him in Mountjoy. In Mountjoy, he'd, he'd swallow a spoon. Mm -hmm. They'd have to bring him over to the matter. That was a couple of days, which was more interesting than being in a cell. And he kept doing that kind of thing. So they declared him insane. Mm -hmm. He wasn't insane, and a psychiatric consultant said, he, this man is not insane. So they sent him to Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum, and they filled him up with drugs. And one psychiatrist said later that it was a chemical straitjacket, just to keep him... I think it was Largactyl. And he, like, he, he, I, I, have, I have actually made a list of the drugs he had. Nidrain, Valium, yeah. Artane, which is a drug... You, you use on Parkinson's disease, which he didn't have. Uh, Largactyl, Librium, Valinman, uh, Ponston, Mogadon, Lentazole, Serenate, and a whole string of painkillers as well. He was a zombie at the end of that. When he came out of Dundrum on one occasion, he couldn't walk. He, mm. he lost his motor skills. He had to be taught how to, to, to walk. And this went on for years. Yeah. And... Eventually, he, some, somebody wrote to a, a retired Supreme Court judge, Kingsmill Moore, Kingsmill Moore. Oh, yes. And he became interested in the case, and various people became interested in it and helped him out. And uh, eventually, it, it, it became a, a known thing that this is what they had done to this guy. But by that time, he was a drug addict. At one stage... He hadn't any drugs. He'd been in uh, the central hosp mental hospital. They released him. He 
needed drugs, the one place he knew he'd get it was the central me mental hospital. So he broke into the hospital, got into the pharmacy, took the drugs, took them immediately, and was caught on the grounds, and then he went through the whole cycle again. And this went on for years. And I, I, I got to know him very well, and he was a very nice guy. He was very tough. He took lot, lots of beatings, and he delivered lots of beatings. So as time went on, people began to realize there was something, yeah, very something wrong about the whole thing. But uh, it took years, and it took a whole... The, there was no mechanism for dealing with it. Mm -hmm. So they... And people like that, this is where they belonged. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to take all of the wealth that Carl stole over his entire life, AIB took that in an afternoon mm. in one branch. And yet nobody, there was never any consideration of anybody involved in that kind of thing going to jail. But Carl kept going back and back and back and back until eventually uh, he, they let him out and he was looked after by various people. He ended up in the Simon community uh, hostel down on Usher's Quay. And I'd, I'd, I'd lost track of him and I was walking along one day and a head appeared at the window with the, the thing shouting, how are you? And uh, he was a really nice, decent man to know with huge interest in Bob Dylan's lyrics. Like he was no idiot. And his life was ruined. Yeah. And if he, if he'd asked NIB for 15 grand, they wouldn't have, he, but he did, he went into a bank, jumped over the counter, grabbed the money and jumped back again and left a perfect set of fingerprints on the counter. And if he could have got it the way other people yeah. got it, he would have got it. And he was bright enough to do those things. But that kind of person, he, when he was born, he was what he was ever going to be. There was never any chance that he wouldn't become what he... And he said it to me. Uh, I didn't set out to be like this. Yeah. And he was, he was a very unique character because of the steps he took to get himself out of jail and into hospital, yeah. which, as you said, was a nicer environment and more interesting than being in a jail cell. Do you, I mean, if anybody wants to, to read Jean's astonishing piece, by the way, about Carl Crawley, if you Google Carl Crawley, the first thing that will come up is his piece in McGill from, I think it was 1985? Sometimes. It's a long, long time ago. Long but it was time. when we used to have magazines with long pieces of journalism instead of snippets fed into our phones. Uh, and it's a fantastic read. It's a real excavation of a life that didn't have a chance, uh, as Jean has said. Do you think, you've, you've given two contrasting stories there, one of a working class boy who grows up and with, with very little chance ahead of him and doesn't get any, and the other of presumably a middle class guy who is able to make his way through the banking system without ever encountering the law. Mm. Has anything changed? No. Uh, it, yeah. It's... There's no sign of that. I think that, that I think something has changed in the prison, the, the approach to prison, and I think there is a, a better understanding of that, at that end, and that there's um, there's a lot more people 
aware of, of how a lot of people had no chance, had no choices in that. If you're, it, it, like, Carl was beaten an awful lot more than he beat anybody else. And when that happens and you grow up into that, you, your choices are very, very limited. And they all lead in one direction. The banking and all of that, I still don't see. There's a whole load of people, and we know they commit crimes. Mm -hmm. It's not, and they do it in a very, a very organized way. It's an organized crime. And like, for instance, if you want to give somebody a, a phony bank account, it takes a lot of doing. You've got to get the, the phony name, the phony address. You've got to work all that out. And uh, so that one part of the bank doesn't know what the other part of the bank is doing officially, although they do know it, that it's happening. So, yes, there hasn't been an improvement, I think, in the attitude to people in jail, to working-class people in jail and people like Carl. Uh, I think the, the other end of it, there's a lack of justice. Just, it's, it's as though the law doesn't exist. And especially, for, I mean, after the crash, you know, yeah. And the fact that the banks brought this, our banks brought the country to its knees effectively. Yeah. Uh, you would think that lessons would have been learned from that. And no, it, it was the, the rest of us who had to pick up the tab as usual. And they're, they're, now I see that they're talking about having to raise the cap on the fantastic salaries they pay to the directors of banks again, because yeah. otherwise they won't get anyone good to run the banks. But I mean, it's a all these people surreal world. If they don't get paid an awful lot of money, they'll leave and they'll go somewhere. Where else are they going to go? Yeah. Where are they going to go? You go to London and you say, well, I worked in an Irish bank. And say, well, yeah. ha, ha, we remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, 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 it's in the same way as people like Carl were put, given long sentences that they didn't deserve without thinking. It was just that they, well, he was in here five times before, so we will show them now. Without thinking that happened, I think on the other hand, uh, in the white collar crime area, there's no thinking. There's no thinking that if we don't do something about this, it will continue. And like the, it's all, the, the kind of stuff that went on in banks with the, the example I gave earlier, involves an awful lot of people. They all know what they're doing. None of them will ever go to jail. It's a gloomy outlook, that's for sure. <laughs> um, Thanks, Jean, for those those two examples. They're they're very very telling. Um, Keelan, Republic of Shame uh, is a wonderful book. It's it's beautifully written. It's brilliantly researched, uh, and you give an account of many of the religious institutions which made so many people suffer until relatively recently. But you also managed, by dint, I presume, of charm. Um, to get your way in to visit a number of nuns who wouldn't speak to other people so readily. Uh, and there, it's very interesting to read your account of how, what, what those conversations were. You could say that the nuns in particular were major hypocrites for all their religious talk about treating children well and uh, being kind to the poor and all the rest of it. And yet we know from the evidence now of a number of tribunals that they were extraordinarily cruel to a lot of uh, both women and children in these places. Take us through your encounters with some of those women, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, Jean, what you're saying about Carl's story, and it's very um, 
reminds me of a lot of survivor stories who were put into the industrial schools as children just for stealing food because they were hungry, who were criminalized, and um, the classism within the institutions as well, women who were working class, institutionalized for longer, sometimes for their whole life, and forced to work in these institutions. Um, bef before I talk about the nuns, I wanted to um, talk about how Tartuffe, uh, mm -hmm. watching that play, all I could see was um, Father Michael Cleary <laughs> the whole time. That's all I could see. He even oh, looks horror. a bit like him. <laughs> um, and it reminded me that I, I wrote, I, for anyone who's not familiar, I think one of the most stark images of church hypocrisy in Ireland was when Bishop Eamon Casey and Father Michael Cleary stood up on that stage in Ballybrit yeah. um, as Pope John Paul uh, II was coming in by helicopter. And both of those sort of members of the Catholic hierarchy were secretly fathers at the time of children um, who they sent off to institutions to keep secret. Um, and I wrote actually in the book that both had preached the church's teaching on sexual morality while living as hypocrites. Mm -hmm. So um, that really resonated uh, watching the play earlier. And, you know, there was a moment, I think it was on the late late, that uh, Michael Cleary uh, was there talking about railing and raging against uh, contraception yep. and speaking about um, the restraint that he had uh, with his own sexual appetite um, and sort of, you know, patting himself on the back for, for, well, he, he wrestled for all his restraints. He, he lost a lot. I mean, yeah, yeah. he yeah, three children um, with Phyllis Hamilton and then also cheating on her while he was supposedly running a shelter for unmarried mothers. Um, so yeah, that, that for me just is the epitome um, in many ways of the church's hypocrisy and someone who is lauded and respected and um, was sort of some, something of a god himself and was living, you know, a lie all the time. Um, but the nuns, I think, um, it was interesting to talk to them. There was hypocrisy in, in sort of the way that they talked about how they were represented. Um, many of the nuns I spoke to would say, well, the media doesn't tell our side. You know, mm. they, only, they only tell one side of the story, but then you try and talk it to them and they wouldn't want to speak. Okay. So I don't know what we were meant to do with that. But uh, eventually, you know, over many teas and scones, um, they would open up, uh, even though the hierarchy within those religious orders still wanted them to yeah. be silent. I spoke to one woman who was a midwife in um, the largest mother and baby home institution in Ireland, St. Patrick's on the mm -hmm. Navan Road. And after speaking with her, her superior, the head of the order, the Daughters of Charity, called me and told me that uh, that nun now, her memory isn't very good. Mm. I wouldn't be listening to anything she has to say. And it was quite chilling, actually. You know, that yeah. level of almost surveillance of their own sisters and, you know, that silence being imposed still. Um, and many of the nuns were really eager to speak. Um, one rang me up and said that she'd been told from someone in the order, she shouldn't speak to me about, you know, the issue of the institutions. And I said, that's fine, sister, no problem. And then she went on for 20 minutes mm. talking about the institutions. So there, there was a, a desire there to talk. Mm. Um, there was one woman, I, uh, one nun I met in the Gresham, a sister of charity, um, which is very, I think one of the most expensive cups of tea in Dublin in the Gresham, but the nuns really like the Gresham. Um, it used to be Wynn's Hotel, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the charges change. Yeah. Um, 
But I sat down with her and I didn't think she would tell me anything. I knew um, she was involved with these anti-trafficking initiatives. And I think it's very interesting to think about the hypocrisy of the rescue movements within the church. So the nuns were, you know, um, on this rescue mission um, to sort of save uh, fallen women. And this was their claim that they were there to rescue people. And yet, really, these rescue movements were about saving souls for the church. I mean, they say this in, in the literature when you look at it. Um, it was about imposing power, imposing authority, keeping children to, for the Catholic faith, because there were also Protestant rescue societies, and they were sort of in a battle for the souls of children. Um, so the idea that it was some sort of selfless rescue mission or, or charity, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in the narratives around rescue and charity and within the anti-trafficking movements today, which nuns, religious orders um, that ran Magdalene laundries, that ran um, uh, industrial schools are now running anti-trafficking initiatives to save women from prostitution, even when sex workers that I've spoken to say that um, you know, it's criminalization that is the problem. And yet um, agencies like Rahama that the nuns set up are against the decriminalization of sex work, the full decriminalization, even though sex workers you would speak to say that is, that is what they want to be safe. Um, so there's hypocrisy in that. There's this ongoing rescue movement that claims to be saving but is actually sort of denying the agency or the voices of the people um, they claim to be rescuing um, and not fighting for, for better rights or, or a law that, you know, or decriminalization of these people, but instead want to sort of save them so they can keep, in a way, a moral authority over the situation. But this nun, anyway, who was involved with these anti-trafficking initiatives, um, is this the Gresham nun? Now? This is yeah, in the okay. Gresham, yes, um, Sister of Charity nun. And she told me, you know, she really didn't seem to want to speak. She was very standoffish. But um, as we spoke, she finally started recounting her days as a novice in a Magdalene laundry in Cork. And all of a sudden, she was telling me it was wrong what they did. And okay. it was wrong how they spoke about the women um, calling them penitents within the laundry. She talked about the silence within the order, the hierarchy, the way that even as a novice, she was not able to speak out against what was happening, even though she felt it was wrong. And several nuns I spoke to expressed this, um, but were sort of silenced and were complicit, continued on in this work and continued on with these orders. Um, so, you know, the acknowledgement of what was done in the laundries, like the acknowledgement from a nun herself. Is very, very critical. That it was wrong. And it's, yeah. uh, it's something we don't get. I mean, part of the, the problem with the religious orders generally is that they won't open up their archives, uh, which would be very valuable to survivors who went through the, the homes. And, so, and I mean, we, just, we simply will not understand 19th or 20th century Irish social history without access to the church archives, because they dealt with so many individuals in various ways. But and that's they're a, doing themselves no favors. That's a huge hypocrisy in itself, this yeah. claim that they are private organizations, yes. private records. You know, the nuns came over, there's accounts of the nuns coming over from France to set up High Park, to set up Magdalene Laundries. Mm -hmm. They didn't come over with money. Mm -hmm. They raised money from mm -hmm. the people here. 
Um, in Temple Hill, an institution is sort of holding centre for children awaiting adoption, often illegally adopted, run by the Sisters of Charity, you could sponsor a cot and name it. Um, and they used to send the trainee nursery nurses out to shape buckets on O'Connell Street to raise money, even though they were taking money from the mothers who had been forcibly separated from their children um, and had plenty of funds. Um, but this idea that it's private wealth or private land or private records mm -hmm. when the money that built those institutions, the money that the church has, was taken from the public. But it's also the fact that the they were running health, education and mm -hmm. so-called welfare services mm -hmm. with the full blessing of the state. Mm -hmm. Society 22 until very recently. That's a shadow state. Mm -hmm. And if anyone in the government or the civil service had the guts, they should say, hands over the records. These yeah. belong to the state and should be public records like anything else. Well, and the, you know, the fact that you have um, sisters and religious orders that take vows of charity, but mm. their hospitals are all private. Yeah, there you go. There's very few of them left, though. I mean, you managed to, I think you managed to get to talk to the last full generation of nuns who were around. Nobody's joining religious orders anymore. Mm -hmm. The jig is up, mm -hmm. I think, at this stage. And other ways are going to have to be found of managing all of this. It's the ongoing battle, isn't it, to try and secularize Irish society. Um, just... We're going to run out of time very quickly, as I knew we would, because uh, this is how it goes. I was going to ask you, Jean, in terms of religious hypocrisy, is there anyone who stands out for you? We've, we've mentioned Eamon Casey and Michael Cleary. There's the Christian Brothers, there's Spock during the, the wonderful 1980s when we were all uh, up in arms about uh, abortion, or two-thirds of the country were anyway, and the rest of us were trying to stop them. Um, is there any particular aspect of religious hypocrisy that occurs to you as being interesting? Well, no. <laughs> because it, it all He's seemed impossible. to me, it all seemed to me from, the, from very early on, the whole setup was hypocritical. Uh, I, we had a, a, a parish priest who was used to come around the schools and he picked me once. He, he, he would pick you out and get you to stand up and say that you go to confession last, last Saturday and if not, why not? And he went through that and it was the sarcasm. We were 10, yeah. 10 or 12, and he was a, an alpha. And he, it just struck me as, even as a kid, I think, this is not right. What are you, why are you doing this? And I was standing there, really embarrassed and he started asking me questions and uh, personal questions and uh, just who are you and what are you what is this about and, and but why and uh, i don't know i'm not saying he was getting kicks out of it mm. but it, it, he, he but enjoyed it's a terrible the power. invasion of privacy he very know? very definitely and yeah you could see it there he enjoyed the power and even if, it, if he was doing somebody else, uh, why, why didn't you go to communion? We were up the canal and we were playing and I forgot about it. By the time we got back, it was too late. Very convenient. Yeah. And just the nastiness in it. Yeah. And that struck me from a very early age. The hypocrisy of, it was all about love and it was all about treating each other properly. And it was all about obeying all these rules. And in that little moment I'm describing, in the classroom, 
he was breaking all the kinds of rules he was telling us was, were important. And so the hypocrisy was there from the beginning for me. And I, I met Michael clearly once and out in the, where he lived. And I just found him very smutty. Yeah. And I don't like that with anyone. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like either you're about sex or you're not. If you're talking about sex, talk about sex. Mm. But don't be smutty about it. Become mm. a priest. Jesus. Mm. It's terrible. He was gross. And he was, he was quite, I, I, know, I know people who lived uh, in Finglas at the time who had no regard for him at all. Yeah. Because, because of that kind of thing. This mm -hmm. just a, a distaste, and uh, it, it, to, to be honest, most of the priests that I was in came up in Cabra West, and most of the priests there were terrific, mm. were great guys, mm. and uh, apart from the parish priest, but uh, I, so I had a very good, I had, I had very good memories of all that. Except for this guy. Except for that And the guy. power that he was exerting and showing that he had the power. I love the idea of a small Jean Carrigan looking quizzically at the parish priest, wondering, why is he doing this? Well, he, he was buried in the church grounds when he died. Yeah. And about two weeks later, there was a break-in at the local supermarket. And the flowers were still fresh on, on his grave. And whoever stole the cigarettes, which is the thing you steal from supermarkets, Stone put them in under the flowers to hide them. <laughs> Somebody found them. I'm not sure if they were trying to say something or whatever. But uh, I mean, it, it was surreal how, how utterly entwined the church was with everything in society at the time. You're, we're about the same age, and I bought a black baby when I was nine. Oh, I, there was a woman, I didn't a girl who used to come in with the black baby box, stand in the classroom, and you put money in. And when you got as far as two and six, you could buy a black baby, which meant you could name this baby in Africa. I named mine Lucille after Lucille Ball. I hope her mother had the good sense to call her whatever she really wanted to call her instead of that. But that was the kind of nonsense we had going on. And collecting bottle tops for children in Africa? I mean, it's bizarre. Uh, we need Pat McCabe to write another novel to give us the full ex extent of how surreal it was. Keelan, to finish off, where do you think we are now in this country with the, uh, the institutional scandals which you have written about so beautifully, and particularly their survivors? Is there a sense in which a lot of Irish society wants to look away from this now, that they find it too difficult and complicated and hard to deal with? Yeah, I mean, we had the Commission of Investigations report, which I think on the first page described these institutions as refuges. Yeah. Places that survivors said were sites of incarceration and, and punishment, where they were forced to work, where they were forcibly separated from their children. So talk about hypocrisy, to call these places refuges, again, that narrative of rescue, um, in a document that the government has essentially accepted. Um, and these hollow apologies from people in power, from, from the Irish government, um, you know, before survivors were even given a copy of the report. I stood in the garden with uh, uh, Rose, a survivor from Toome, as she watched this private sort of Zoom session um, with government ministers, and they told survivors, now, read that report carefully, and they were going to apologise the next day. Oh, Rose didn't sorry. even have a copy of 3, the report. 3,000 pages. They didn't even bother giving her yeah, a copy. I know. And, um, you know, 
The religious orders uh, refused to give any redress to Magdalene survivors. Um, they claimed that instead they were giving access to records and information as Which a form of redress. Well, Rose was sent to the Magdalene Laundry in Galway after being entombed twice and separated from her children. Um, and we applied for her records and all that the Mercy Sisters sent her was one line from a ledger. That's all they had, so some redress that is. But that line showed that she was sent by nuns from Tomb, and the reason she was sent was twice penitent. So twice for having penitent. two children treated as an offender. And that's language that was, is in black and white in church documents, mm -hmm. offenders, penitents, inmates. Mm -hmm. So to claim that these were places of refuge mm -hmm. is such a lie. But the state as well, you know, it was, uh, Jean, you were writing about the Kerry Babies case recently, and, you know, this, the way that the government has been talking about the need for justice for an innocent victim, mm -hmm. um, this, you know, baby John, and yet there's 9,000 children died in the mother and baby home institutions. And we still don't know where hundreds of oh, those children buried. are buried. Yeah. Um, it's Good Friday next, uh, tomorrow. Uh, there was several years ago, I was um, in a famine graveyard, a field in Cork, mm -hmm. um, with a woman whose son is apparently buried there. Um, and it took her years of asking and freedom of information requests, and they never gave her any information. The nuns told her he was buried on the grounds of Vesper. That was a lie. Um, and it was only when the, the report came out on burials that there was an anonymous section mm -hmm. that described where her son was buried. And after all those years of searching, I had to message her on Facebook to say, yeah. is this your son? from anonymous paragraph in a burials report. The you know, redress scheme is denying thousands yes. of survivors redress. And I think, you know, we talk about hypocrisy. Survivors share their testimony so that uh, these injustices won't be repeated. And yet we are today normalizing systems of institutionalization like direct provision and emergency accommodation um, that are, you know, causing untold harm. Um, and for ourselves to make sure we don't normalize those systems of institutionalization and we don't become hypocrites saying, well, how horrific the mother and baby home institutions are and don't look at the institutions of today um, that are effectively incarcerating people. Well, I think that's, that's a good plea on which to end our, our session tonight. Thank you both so much for your, your insights based on that funny but dark play about about hypocrisy can you join me in thanking Kaylin Hogan and Jean Kerrigan please <clears throat>